We're in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'd open your Bible there to chapter five. We like to study the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Keeps us honest. We're in chapter five. We're looking at verses 17 through 48. Matthew 5, 17 through 48. The topic, Jesus describes the efforts of the scribes and the Pharisees to do right as being deadly to the spirit of God's law. The title of our message, Deadly Do-Rights. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are anxious to get into your word this morning. It's a, an extremely familiar passage, Lord, uh, but that only means that sometimes we, we don't take time to focus like we should, and so I pray that we would today and that you would teach us new things, not for the sake of them being new, but new in the sense, Lord, that they are revealed to our hearts in, in a new way so that we are more Christ-like than when we came into this place because, Lord, after all, that's, that's what we signed on for is to be conformed day by day into the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It's called vanity sizing. It's also known as size inflation. It's the practice of clothing manufacturers using smaller numbered sizes on larger clothing. Although size standards do exist, many companies don't use them anymore they favor vanity sizing. Now, why would they do that? Well, it satisfies your desire to appear thin and feel better about yourself and thus be more inclined to buy. Guys, you only think you're a size 34. You've been a 36 or a 38 for some time, <laughs> but Wrangler uh, is doing this uh, size stuff. You know, So I, you thought I'd pick on the ladies, but they don't need picking on. Uh, you and I do. Actually, my Wranglers stretch now, so I don't know what size they are. <laughs> Whoever invented stretch pants, that guy is a genius. That's like there's, there's sliced bread, the iPhone, and then stretch pants in, those, in that order. Now, the first century Jewish scribes and Pharisees, they had a vanity sizing problem of their own. It wasn't their clothing. It was with their righteousness. They were inflating the size of their righteousness to appear more spiritual before men. Jesus told his followers that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees fell short of the standard God requires, which he states in verse 48 as being perfect. But the remarkable thing is that although the scribes and the Pharisees fell short, we can, in fact, be perfect just as our Father in heaven is perfect. Because we are saved, and we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we can keep the spirit of God's law rather than trying and failing to keep it to the letter. I'll organize my thoughts around the following two points. Number one, you shan't be perfect by keeping the letter of the law, but you shall be perfect by keeping the spirit of the law. Let's take a look in verses 17 through 20 on the letter of the law. Now, we're in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus took his closest followers on a mountain retreat to explain to them various aspects of the kingdom of heaven that he was offering. A natural question for any Jew would be, will the law of Moses remain in effect once Jesus establishes the kingdom and is the king in Jerusalem? And so the Lord begins to talk to them in verse 17 about that. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law and the prophets is shorthand for the Jewish scriptures, what we as Gentiles call the Old Testament. The law specifically is the system of legislation given by God through Moses to the nation of Israel. Thus we call it interchangeably the law, God's law, the law of Moses, or the Mosaic law. All of those things identify the same thing. The entire body of the law The heart of it is found in Exodus chapters 20 through 31, in the book of Leviticus, and in the book of Deuteronomy. Its essence is expressed by the Ten Commandments. They're a good shorthand for the entire law. Jesus held the law in the highest possible regard. He uh, talked about the jot and the tittle. The jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle is a small mark or projection, a little brush stroke that serves to distinguish one letter from another, much as the bottom stroke of a capital E distinguishes it from a capital F in the English language. If Jesus held the Bible in such high regard, not just its ideas and ideals, but the very letters and the words themselves, then so must we. Now, the law must be fulfilled because it reflects the holiness of God and it reveals the heart of God for his creation. Far from abolishing it, Jesus upheld it and he warned of the consequences to any who broke even the least of these commandments and taught others to do the same. Okay, it sounds like we are to keep the law. Well, of course we are, just not the way the scribes and Pharisees did. Verse 20, for I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were seen as spiritual giants, The average Jew thought no one could be as righteous as these guys. For example, my favorite example, these guys tithed from their spices. And so the next time you're cooking and it calls for a tablespoon of oregano, realize that if you were a Pharisee, you would count out 10% of those flakes and set them aside and give them in your offering. Garlic salt would be my, I'd have to give up garlic salt. Just counting those little grains would be rough. I guess you could use a gram weight scale, but they didn't really have gram weight scales back then, did they? So these guys were serious about what they believed was righteousness, and other people shrunk back, and they thought, well, I could never be that righteous. And so when Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs, this was stunning. This was absolutely stunning. In the verses that follow, Jesus is going to explain what he meant. He's going to show how by misinterpreting God's law, the scribes and the Pharisees appeared to be keeping it to the letter, but they were missing it in spirit. In fact, some of their misinterpretations led to even greater sin, not to righteousness. Christians continue to be troubled about our relationship with the law of God. William MacDonald wrote this. He said, The law was never given as a means of salvation. It was designed to show people their sinfulness and to drive them to God for his gracious salvation. It was given to the nation of Israel, even though it contains moral principles which are valid for every people in every age. 
So we would say that certain moral principles contained in the law are permanent. It is always wrong to steal, to covet, to murder, things like that. In fact, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, but with an important distinction. They are not given as laws that you follow, but as training in righteousness for the church. They reveal the heart of God and the holiness of God so that the Holy Spirit of God who is in you is able to lead you into keeping them from the heart. The one commandment not repeated in the New Testament is the Sabbath commandment. Christians are under no obligation to keep the Sabbath. You can keep the Sabbath. You can worship on Saturday. You can, whatever that means to you, but you don't have to. The ministry of the law to unsaved people has not ended. Its use is still to produce the knowledge of sin and thus lead to repentance. But the law is not for those who are already saved 1 Timothy 1.9 says the law is not made for a righteous person. If you want a proof text for all of this because we don't have time to go into it, Acts chapter 15, there is a church council uh, in Jerusalem. And this very question came up. The, The question was, does a Gentile need to keep the law and convert to Judaism in order to be saved? And the church discerned the mind of the Holy Spirit and the answer was no. Only keep the moral imperatives that are timeless, but as far as the dietary and ceremonial parts of God's law, those were for Israel. They were never imposed on the Gentiles. Pastor David Guzik said, the law sends us to Jesus to be justified because it shows us our inability to please God in ourselves. But after we come to Jesus, he sends us back to the law to learn the heart of God for our conduct and sanctification. God never intended us to try to keep his law as a means of righteousness. You can't be perfected by keeping the letter of the law. We're gonna see in just a minute how intense the law is. Just because you haven't murdered anybody doesn't mean you haven't broken the law. In fact, you have if you've ever driven in Los Angeles. When you trust him as your savior, Jesus takes upon himself your sin. He gives you his righteousness. And by the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are empowered and you desire to keep the spirit of the law. And so verses 21 through 48, you shall be perfect by keeping the spirit of the law. Jesus gave a series of examples to illustrate how the scribes and the Pharisees were misinterpreting the law in order to appear to keep it to the letter. Now we want to pay attention to this because it is our tendency as humans to think we can be right with God by keeping the letter of the law even when our hearts are far from him. We should always be careful calling someone a Pharisee, but the truth is there is a little Pharisee in all of us as sinners. There's a a part of us that wants to think we're okay because what we're thinking about we haven't actually done. And after all, we're only human. And I think God wants to take a step back and say, you're more than human, you now have the divine nature and let's keep our hearts pure so that that thought doesn't eventuate into sin. And so the first illustration Jesus gave was their misinterpretation of the command, do no murder. Verse 21, you have heard it said, uh, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now the phrase you have heard it was said to those of old refers to the traditions that the Jews had added to God's law as their own interpretation. 
Now, by the way, something to remember, just tuck this away, antiquity does not equal authority. Just because something is old doesn't mean it is right. Today, and actually all the time in the church, but today especially, there is a a movement where people will say, well, this is what the early church fathers did. This is how they prayed, and this is how they meditated. Uh, I was watching a video the other day, uh, and the guy was talking about the patristic worship uh, from, I assume, the, the word for pater, father, the early church fathers. And there's a thought that you have that, well, I guess if the early church fathers did this, then it must be right. No. What's right is what we read in the word of God, and those guys could be just as wrong as us. By early church fathers, we're not talking about Paul when he was writing the scriptures. We're talking about guys like Origen and Tertullian and these guys that get quoted and you know the, the Orthodox church and all of that. Hey, we go by the Bible. We're not, I'm not saying those guys don't in some cases, but just because something is old doesn't make it right. And so don't get drawn in by that argument. It's a poor argument. In the case of do no murder, the Jews had added the phrase, whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And here's what this does. The addition redefines murder as actual murder that can be tried in a court of law. What they're saying is God said not to murder anybody and what he meant was don't actually murder anybody. The addition weakened the spirit of the law by ignoring the underlying hard attitudes that give rise to actual murder. They give you a pass on anger and contempt. And so verse 22, Jesus says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. By reducing murder to actual murder, Jews could harbor terrible anger and treat each other with disdain and contempt, but still think they were keeping the law. Jesus said that those attitudes were serious enough to bring you into judgment before men and by God. Now, don't get hung up on the words raka and fool. Those aren't the issue. They were the common insults of their day. Sort of like saying, uh, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. No, you've never heard that before? Well, now you have. Uh, anyway, uh, so it's not the word. Everybody gets into the word. It's, it's the attitude. And throughout this section, we want to capture what is the heart of the matter, not the specific words or, or rules. There are no new rules here. There is just an attitude of how to approach righteousness. And so Jesus illustrated the spirit of the law. In verse 23, he says, therefore, if you're bringing your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The scribes and the Pharisees stressed the external aspects of the law. If you had gone to them for advice and said, you know, I'm really angry at my brother, they'd say, don't worry about that, just make sure you get to church, or get to synagogue, get to the temple with your gift. Because God is only interested in your gift. And don't worry about what's going on in your heart. The spirit of the law proceeding from the heart of God is that to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants you to have a purity of heart 
more so than he cares about your bringing the sacrifice. Verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. In the previous example, your brother had something against you. You had done something. In this one, he still does. In other words, you are the one who is wrong in these illustrations. A lot of times we immediately assume, you know, uh, somebody has wronged us and we need to go to them and deal with this. But Jesus is saying, hey, I'm talking to you when you are harboring anger and bitterness and resentment and hatred in your heart. Don't think that by going through the motions of sacrifice and outward religion that you are righteous because you're missing entirely the point. He wanted them to see that their heart life is where righteousness must be cultivated. The spirit of the law is to live at peace with others to the extent that it depends upon you. It is to seek reconciliation when there is a problem. It may not always be possible to be at peace and to be reconciled, but that's a lot different than harboring hatred and thinking you are spiritual while doing it. Now, the next illustration Jesus used was their misinterpretation of the command to not commit adultery. He says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now, the commandment against murder had to do with the heart. So does the commandment against adultery. Adultery is more than the physical act. Verse 28, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Obviously, the corollary is true for a woman looking upon a man. This is a male-dominated culture. It wouldn't make any sense uh, to them for Jesus to talk about women. Uh, and when he gives the example in a minute of, uh, of marriage and divorce, you'll see again the emphasis is on the man because women had no rights in that society. They were completely taken care of by their husbands. And so Jesus here never makes the sins of the heart equal to carrying them out. Anger is not as bad as murder. I'd rather you be mad at me than you actually kill me. Uh, and so would my wife and my family. Lusting is not as bad as physical adultery, but they are sin. And we could make the argument that if we kept the heart pure, the physical sin would never be committed. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, if sin were not allowed in the mind, it would never be made manifest in the body. I think that's a great summary of what Jesus is saying. If you're not sinning in your mind or in your heart, as we would say, you're not gonna sin outwardly. But just stopping the outward sin doesn't do anything to what's happening in the heart. Do you ever think you're doing okay because you're, you're, there's no actionable sin? There's nothing anybody can point to and say, you're actually doing this. It's all in your heart and mind. If so, we're Pharisees keeping our personal misrepresentation of the law while intentionally ignoring the spirit of the law. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. In the margin of my Bible, there's a note that says, don't try this at home. No, not really. Don't try this anywhere. Uh, if you consult, now here's something interesting. If you consult a Jewish encyclopedia, 
or a Jewish historical record regarding the Pharisees of the first century, you're gonna find that they uh, had categorizations. They, they fell into different categories depending on certain practices. There were those, and this is a true thing, I looked it up, I'd been taught this for years, but I thought that can't be true, but it's true. There were Pharisees who were labeled bruised and bleeding Pharisees. How many of you have heard this before? Bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Thank you, God bless you, I see that hand. You guys are saved, I don't know about the rest of you, but anyway. (laughs) Bruised and bleeding Pharisees. They were called that because anytime they saw a woman in public out in the streets, they would shut their eyes, but they would keep walking and they would run into walls or doors or posts or whatever was in the way, and eventually they would have bruises and they would have cuts, and the more bruises and the more bleeding they did, the more righteous they appeared. You say, oh man, look at that guy, is super righteous, he's got two shiners, you know? And uh, I think they actually walked faster. I mean, so this was their badge of righteousness that they were bruised and bleeding. And so knowing that, Jesus takes this to a whole other level. He he says, hey, if you're gonna go that far, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. Now, he's obviously not suggesting that physical mutilation or amputation is going to in any way resolve the problem of lust in the heart. It doesn't work backwards. But he is saying that we must prioritize the heart to the point that we would be willing to go through life maimed if it were necessary in order to avoid sin. In other words, he's saying the real priority here is the heart. If you had to keep gouging out eyes and cutting off limbs in order to be you know, pure, the real priority should be your heart. Let me give you a real life application of this principle. It would be the young man Joseph in the Old Testament book of Genesis who there in Potiphar's house was constantly being uh, assaulted, sexually assaulted as it were, uh, harassed at least, by Potiphar's wife who wanted him to sleep with her until one day she thought she had him and she grabbed him and he ran out of the house naked facing imprisonment. It was his version of doing whatever it takes to avoid sin and to keep his heart pure. Now apparently, He was a pretty pure guy because he was able to still work in that environment without having to gouge out his eye or cut off his hand. But when it came to it, when the sin came to him, he ran from it. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the priority here is the heart, not the physical. And so you can go around being a bruised and bleeding Pharisee all you want, but it doesn't affect the heart. Next illustration was their misinterpretation of marriage and divorce. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. The certificate of divorce was a legal document in which a husband relinquished his rights to the wife he was divorcing. This would allow the woman the possibility of remarriage. In a society in which women were totally dependent upon men for their living, remarriage would be her only protection. There's some thinking by some scholars that what the certificate of divorce did for a woman was prove that she was not an adulteress, that she hadn't committed adultery and that was the reason that she was being divorced and put away since that 
since the law made uh, you know a, a, an appropriation for uh, adultery, and even though you were supposed to be stoned for committing adultery, uh, you see with Joseph and Mary at the birth of Jesus, he was going to put her away privately so that no one thought that she was. Uh, you know, this or that. And so, whatever, we don't know everything about the certificate of divorce except that uh, it was an addition to God's law. God, this was never what God intended for marriage. Men were divorcing their wives for almost any reason which would leave them destitute. Now, in a future teaching, Jesus is gonna point out that Moses initiated this certificate of divorce to regulate this liberal attitude towards divorce, it was actually to protect women. The certificate of divorce, therefore, was a concession to regulate divorces that were sin. And so people were sinning so much, they weren't going to stop, and so Moses said, I will at least regulate it so it's not as bad as it could be. That kind of describes American culture today, doesn't it? in so many areas that you could less and say, hey, why don't we go back to the place where this was illegal? Well, that's not gonna happen apart from revival. It's not gonna happen through legislation. While we're, I don't wanna get off on this, but I'm going to. While we're legislating a little thing over here that's very important, something happened way back here where now we're legislating immorality. And so we're trying to stop immorality from overwhelming us, but it's, still, it, it was, it's really wrong back here. But we, kind of, we know that we can't win that battle anymore unless people repent and get saved. And so I say, let's preach the gospel. Now, Jesus describes remarriage after an unbiblical divorce in terms of adultery. By divorcing a woman without biblical grounds, it put her in a position uh, which, in which only remarriage or illicit relationships were possible. Thus, the husband had caused the woman to become an adulteress. Jesus is gonna give a more detailed teaching on divorce and remarriage in chapter 19. This is not a teaching on divorce and remarriage. It's an illustration of how misinterpreting the law makes you appear righteous when, in fact, you can be causing even more sin. The very men who were bragging about their righteousness were sinning and leading others to do so. Scribes and Pharisees misinterpreted the practice of swearing oaths. In verse 33, it says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, the misinterpretation here was saying that only those oaths that were sworn to the Lord, that is, in his name, were binding. And so you could say, I swear by Jerusalem, as we'll see, or I swear by the hairs of my head, some of you can't say that, or I swear by, you know, the king. And you could have your fingers crossed behind your back and everybody knew that there was a 50-50 chance that you were lying. But if you swore by the name of the Lord, well, now then you've got to keep that. So that was their teaching. But it gave rise to the practice of swearing oaths without invoking his name that you never intended to keep. We call that lying the Pharisees called it righteousness. It's so interesting to look at this. He says, I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. 
Jesus pointed out that any oath you swear invokes something in God's creation, so you are always swearing by God or you're always swearing in the presence of God. Is it wrong to swear an oath? Well, I think Jesus had in mind false oaths. He's talking about them swearing these false oaths. Some oaths, like our marriage vows, they're actually recommended, but probably we should limit the swearing of oaths and just be truthful all the time. So if you're asked to swear an oath or put your hand on the Bible, that's not unscriptural. It's not what Jesus is talking about. But in general, he's saying just be truthful all the time. His main point was to show how these guys could justify lying while simultaneously thinking they were the gold standard of righteousness. Next was their misinterpretation of God's justice. You've heard that it was said, verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The law did specify this, but it did so to limit retaliation. The Jews misinterpreted to teach that you must retaliate. They eliminated the possibility of showing mercy. Now, as an Italian, I can tell you that the problem with retaliation is that it always accelerates. It goes way beyond an eye for an eye. Allow me to illustrate. In the movie, The Untouchables, Sean Connery's character is explaining to Elliot Ness what it's going to take to fight Al Capone. He says, they pull a knife, you pull a gun. They put one of yours in the hospital, you put two of theirs in the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And I would add, that's the Jerusalem way of the scribes and Pharisees. And so they, if something happened to you, hey, it's not just your right, it's your duty to retaliate. And retaliation always gets way, way out of hand. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Whoever wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Keep in mind, as I said earlier, Jesus is not replacing old laws with new laws. He's suggesting we keep the spirit of the law which is to be merciful and generous even when wronged. He's not saying that every day you need to go out and find somebody to slap you in the face, give them your coat, and then walk with them mile after mile after mile, and then you will be righteous. That's as dumb as what the Pharisees thought. He's saying in certain situations in life where you would normally demand your rights, maybe you should think about being generous and merciful in order to show the love of God through Jesus Christ. My first thought when I am wronged ought not to be about my rights. It ought to be about how I can bring God's mercy and generosity to bear. Doesn't mean I never exercise my rights. Otherwise, as I said, I'd have a bruised face, no clothes in my closet, and I'd be worn out from carrying people's burdens. But do I ever do any of those things? What is my first thought? When I'm wronged, what is your first thought when you're wrong? That's wrong. I have rights. Where do I sue? Where's my grievance? I got a pad full of grievance in my wallet. You know, I just, I got them pre-filled out. I just need your name. We're a litigious society, but it's always the other guy who's the litigator, right? It's not us. We would never think of suing anybody. It's in the heart. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, you don't need to practice all this stuff. You need to practice things like this in your situation because that's the heart of the law. The last of the misinterpretations had to do with God's command to love your neighbor. Verse 43, 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Jews had misinterpreted love your neighbor to mean it was okay or even commanded to hate your enemy. Does that, that's human logic, isn't it? Hmm, God said to love my neighbor. He didn't say to love my enemy, so I must, I must need to hate my enemy. There you go, I've got it. And you know what? People love to hate their enemies, don't they? They love to hate their enemies. It, it, for a while there, it was hard for Hollywood to find an enemy for us to hate. For so many years, we, every bad guy was Russian. Do you remember that? They were all bad. There was always the bad Russian. Then Russia, you know, we got kind of cozy with Russia there for a while. And even now, we want to be careful. And so now it's the Arabs or the Muslims or, I mean, you know, and so uh, there's, there's, there's got to be somebody that we can all agree to hate. And, and that, that's the spirit, that's not the spirit of the law, that's the letter of the law. He says to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You may be the sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is compassionate, God is long-suffering. Even in the Old Testament, when God ordered his people to destroy their enemies, it was after hundreds of years of waiting for them to repent, and if they repented on the eve of his judgment, he would relent and save them. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do that. Matthew's a former tax collector. He must be all stoked about this. Thank you, Lord, put me in there. Uh, because I'm sure some of the other, this is early in them being disciples, you know, and I, I can't imagine that the fishermen were real happy about Matthew being, uh, you know, one of their number. Tax collectors were Jews who were employed by the Roman government to exact taxes and whatever else they could get from them. It was like a legalized extortion. And so uh, Jews hated them and considered them traitors. By their misinterpretation, they claimed to be righteous, but a Jew who loved his neighbor while hating his enemy was exactly like a tax collector. Now, throughout these illustrations, Jesus had given some possible responses of a follower who understood the spirit of God's law and was enabled to keep it by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He wasn't, again, giving rules. This is, he, said, he wasn't saying this is what you must do in every situation. He says these are the kinds of things you should be thinking about. Now he says that person that he's talking to, that disciple who is you and I, can be perfect. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you are a Christian, you are perfect and you are being made perfect. When a person trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior, he immediately gives them his perfect righteousness and God accepts them on account of his Son. You are not righteous in yourself. There's nothing you have done or could ever do to make yourself righteous. You are declared righteous because of Jesus. On the cross, he takes your sin and he gives you his right standing with God. And we call this positional righteousness. Your position has changed. You've gone from a hell-doomed sinner to a person declared righteous. The imputed righteousness that you get leads to the practice of righteousness. Because you have this new nature, you desire to obey God, and as, he, uh, and as you choose to actually obey him, you're being perfected day by day. One day, when we're no longer in these bodies of flesh, our righteousness will be complete, will be altogether perfect and without sin. And so that's the process. You're declared righteous, 
Jesus is making you righteous as you cooperate with him and obeying the spirit of the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. One day when you're resurrected from the dead or raptured, you'll be absolutely perfect. Now, have you ever played the word association game where you're given a word and are asked to say the first thing that pops into your head? As a Christian going through life, God is perfecting you so that the first thing that pops into your heart is reconciliation, not murder. Purity, not lust. Truth, not falsehood. Mercy, not justice. And love, not hatred. We all have a long way to go. But he that has begun this good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so if, and you know, if the truth would be told about all of us, none of us are 100% pure in our heart. It's impossible because we're in these bodies of flesh. But if when I do this association, I find myself not thinking of these sort of things, not thinking of reconciliation first or not thinking of purity first, when maybe I used to, then I need to make some adjustments because what I think and meditate upon in my heart, it really is serious. It may eventuate into actual sin, which would be terrible and devastating for me and many other people as well. But even if it never does, I'm fooling myself if I think it's not important. Jesus wants me to have a greater and greater heart life from which to share his life with others around me.